Good morning. For those of you who I haven't had the joy to meet yet, my name is Aaron Campbell. I'm also one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace Church and just want to add my welcome to Matt's. So glad that you could be with us this morning as we wrap up our series on discipleship. And as we got started this morning, I thought it might be good for us to reflect on something that probably for most of us we don't give a lot of time and thinking to. Breathing. Seems like the only time that I think about breathing is when something threatens to take it away. For instance, I've gone jogging a couple of times lately. If that's what you want to call it. It's an experience I find no enjoyment in whatsoever. The neighborhood we currently live in is basically at the bottom of the hill. So really, as soon as I start going, I'm running uphill. And uh, that means it doesn't take very long at all before I am quite focused on breathing. And more specifically, how much... takes to keep from passing out. We don't think about breathing in our moment-by-moment existence. We eat and drink and sleep and function without ever giving a passing thought to, I need to take a breath now. It's not something that we put on our calendars But if we were to head out to the neighborhood pool and I were to use my extensive experience as a big brother and hold you under the water for more than just a few seconds, well, breathing would take on a whole new priority in your thinking. It wouldn't be long before really that would be all that you would be able to think about. After that, after you got that first breath, you'd probably be thinking what a jerk I was. But in that moment, all you would be thinking about is taking your next breath. Breathing is essential to our existence. If our lungs fill with water instead of oxygen-rich air, we cease to be among the living. But even though we can't go for more than a few minutes without breathing, the reality is that most of us almost never think about breathing at all. And frankly, it's okay. It's okay that we don't give that much attention to the oxygen-carbon dioxide exchange because God has made us in such a way that it can run in the background. We don't need to be thinking about it all the time. But, God desires our relationship with Him to be much more than just an important thing that exists in the background of our lives. I have a concern for us this morning. And I very much include myself in this. This this was a convicting message to prepare. So I hope that it It has benefit for you as well because it was convicting to me. 
The concern I have is that we not take the presence of God in our lives for granted. I think, and I'm speaking from personal experience, that we can take His presence as an occasional bonus, a nice add-on to the Christian life. I mean, and for some of us, let's just be honest, when I mention the words God's presence, there's not even a category for what does that really mean or look like. We can go days or weeks or maybe sometimes even months without ever hungering or longing for His active presence to be displayed in our lives. Yet, like breathing, it is essential to who we are as disciples. This is something that the followers of God in ages past saw as a defining characteristic of who they were. Yet it seems that at times I can just live my life oblivious to the reality that God is with me. Here. Now. All the time. And we are going to see from Scripture this morning is that true disciples hunger for the presence of God. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. While you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of context. We just finished the book of Genesis where we looked at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then concluded with the Joseph narrative. After Joseph died, the end, chapter 50 of Genesis, Israel spent 400 years in bondage, in slavery, in the nation of Israel. But by chapter 33 of Exodus, the nation of Israel has been delivered by God out of Egypt. They are now in the desert, and Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with the Lord and to receive the law from Him. But, but Moses has been gone now for 40 days. And the people are getting itchy. What's going on? Is he even coming back? And so, the nation of Israel collects some gold and they make idols. They make golden calves to represent a God with them, among them. Well, neither God nor Moses were very pleased by this. When Moses returned, he went before God and offered his life an attempt to make atonement for the nation of Israel's sin. But that wasn't something he had the ability or the qualifications to do. So the question is, as we begin chapter 33, what will God do next? What will his response look like? 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing 
with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. I just want to pause there just for a moment. Because what God is saying here is He's going to honor His promises. He is going to stay true to His Word, to the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 4, when the people heard this, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And and again, just want to pause for a minute. What, What was this disastrous? Word? was that first part that we read that God was, He was sending them to the promised land. This land flowing with milk and honey. He was sending an angel to lead them. He was also promising to eliminate their enemies. How many of us would consider that bad news? Sounds like a pretty good deal to me. Wow, you mean you're going to send me to this great place? You're going to take care of the problems that are there? You're going to show clear leadership by sending an angel? I mean, that's kind of unprecedented in history. What a great deal. There was only one thing that was missing. God Himself. And for Israel, that made all the difference between great news and disastrous news. The next few verses describe the tent of meeting where Moses would speak to God while the rest of the people waited. Let's skip down to verse 12. The conversation that takes place in the tent of meeting. Moses said to the Lord, See, you you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, please consider this as well, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. 
For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Think about where Moses and and the Israelites find themselves in chapter 33. We went through Genesis. We saw how God would speak to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The favor that was on Joseph's life. But then after Joseph, we have 400 years where there's no recorded message from God. The people are put into bondage and serve as slaves to Egypt for centuries. There is no mention during that time of God's activity or His speaking to His people. Now, after 400 years, don't, don't you think that you would wonder whether these stories that you've heard are even true? Are they anything more than bedtime stories and tall tales? Is there really a God who can be known and who relates to His people? Does He even really exist? I mean, think about that span of time. 400 years is as long as there have been any English existence at all on the, nation, on the continent of North America. You think about that span of time of silence, of not knowing what God was doing, not hearing His voice. You begin to wonder, is that true? Was that just something that those guys made up? Could it really be? And along comes Moses, who reminds them of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No doubt there were many skeptics, but don't you think some hearts warmed began to burn as Moses told them about the burning bush, about his encounter with the great I Am. And then, for the first time in centuries, the people see God's dealings with them firsthand. First through the the signs that Moses gave and the plagues that He brought upon the nation of Israel, and then until finally, they were all backed into a corner against the Red Sea, chased by the army of Egypt, about to face annihilation. And they saw the hand of God part the waters. They saw with their own eyes moments before their destruction And they felt with their own toes the dry ground that they walked upon in between the waters on either side. They have seen and felt and lived the wonders of God as He saved them and destroyed their pursuers. Yet, those experiences weren't enough. When Moses was gone for 40 days on the mountain, 
They wanted to see a God among them. So they gave gold and fashioned a calf. Now God spared the nation, but here He bans them from His presence. God promises to send an angel to lead them to the promised land. He's still blessing them. He's still giving them victory over their enemies. Land flowing with milk and honey. But this is disastrous news. Because God Himself isn't going with them. And they were hungry for the presence of God. They knew the difference between life without God and life in their midst with Him. It makes me wonder as I see their response in the midst of their sin. The question of what God is going to do and they're pleading for God to be with them. In my life, when I sin, when I'm tempted with guilt, do I prefer and plead for that presence of God? Or would I rather have some distance? Right now, in my shame, I just want you to go away. Which do I want more? Him or the stuff I get from Him? The blessings that He provides? Oh, He gives some pretty good things. Am I satisfied with a one-time encounter or experience with God? Or do I long for an ongoing day after day, today and tomorrow, not just yesterday, relationship with God? Am I satisfied with the blessings of God? Or will I settle for nothing less than God Himself? These are some of the things where some of that conviction I talked about started coming in for me. Reading their response in the midst of their sin to their passion, their pursuit, their hunger for God to be with them. For Moses, the answer to these questions was clear. If he's on deal or no deal, the banker just offered a decent package, but he declares, no deal. He's going for broke. It's a million bucks or nothing. I mean, thanks for the goodie bag, God, but if you're not included in this deal, please don't send us. You are what defines us. You are what separates us from all the peoples of the earth. If we don't have You, we ain't got nothing. Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. I love this. Like I said, Moses is going for broke. It's all or nothing. He doesn't stop. Go with us. Show, show me your glory, Lord. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name, 
the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And, and this, this chapter concludes by God letting Moses know that he can't see his face. No one may see his face and live. But he will give him the opportunity. He will take him to a place in the rock, in the cleft, and he will cover him with his hand and allow him to see his glory in the form of his back after he passes by. But this inability for Moses to make atonement for the people by offering his own life, and the fact that Moses needs, Moses himself needs God's covering in order to get even a glimpse of the glory of God reveals something essential for our understanding of the privilege of God's presence. See, there's only one way we can ever gain access to His presence. Those who don't have relationship with God, the presence of God is a terrifying thing. It should be a frightening thing to be in the presence of a holy God. I mean, if we just considered throughout Scripture, I mean, this is one the angels even cover their eyes before. Those that are in His presence continually, Isaiah talks about having six wings, to fl two to fly, two to cover their feet, and two to cover their eyes. As they cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Without being granted access, oh, we have no right to be in His presence. And to be in His presence would be our undoing. It would be terrifying. It would be our destruction. But, but for Moses and for all who trust in God, the same hand that shielded Moses was pierced for our transgressions. In Jesus, God approached us. He pursued us. Oh, in the garden, at the fall, we were cast out of His presence. But out Golgotha, Oh, that temple veil was torn in two to bring us near. He made the way by becoming the way. There is no way to relationship with God for stiff-necked people but through the God who became man. We are accepted by God only because Jesus was rejected by God. He endured the wrath and alienation our sin deserved because He was separated from the Father. You and I could be made sons and daughters. Moses was allowed to see the glory of God's back only because one day that same back would be turned on His only begotten Son as He became sin for you and I.
no matter how much we pursue or hunger after the presence of God, we can be convinced that He has pursued it further. He planned for it longer. He made it happen. He made sure it wasn't just a good intention. He died for this. That you might know Him and love Him and spend forever and ever and ever with Him in His presence. The hunger to be with God was made possible, was made actual by God's hunger to be with us. This hunger to be with God, though, wasn't limited just to Moses, to Israel at this time. Isn't that what defined Jesus' disciples as well? Those that were, they, they were those that were with him. They wanted to be with Jesus. They couldn't imagine not being with Jesus to the point that at one point when Jesus talks about his need to go away and depart from them, Peter rebukes the Lord. Their whole understanding, their identity was wrapped up in this man. We need to be with him. They heard him speak. They took in his teaching and commands. They wanted to please him. Following him was more important than growing their businesses or oftentimes even knowing where they would lay their head at night. There was a very real who are we without you element to their understanding because true disciples hunger for the presence of God. It's a question that comes to us. Are we the same way? Must we have Jesus? Are we content to keep Him in His place on Sunday mornings, Wednesday evenings? Are we dependent upon Him continually? Or do we only really need Him in the foxhole when the bullets are flying? Not having Jesus present simply wasn't in the disciples' understanding or their plans. They couldn't fathom their life as disciples apart from Him. So how strange. How strange it must have sounded to their ears when Jesus declared unequivocally, it's better for you that I depart. John 16, 7. Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Think about that for a second. Jesus, God the Son, is saying it is to your advantage that I leave. I, I don't know about you, but I, I've had the thought before, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we could just have been there then. Back in the day when you could just 
ask your question to Jesus directly. I mean, that's the relationship that these men enjoyed with Him. They ate with Him. They traveled with Him. They were with Him all the time. And yet, to those men, He declares, it is to your advantage, to your advantage, that I depart. He's not saying, I got to go and you'll be okay without me. You'll survive. No. It's to your advantage. He is God. But, as God the Son, He placed Himself within the confines of a physical body. In time and space, He could only be one place at one time. Only one person or group or at most one crowd could have access to Him, could benefit from Him at any given time. Only one could benefit from His teaching or His healing at any given time or location. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, wouldn't have those limitations. The Spirit could reveal Jesus to someone in Jerusalem at the same time He was convicting someone of sin in Judea. At the same time He was bringing healing to someone in Samaria multiplied millions of times over. He is with all disciples all the time no matter where they are. When leaving, Jesus could say it was to the disciples' advantage because He would send the Helper, the person of the Trinity whose purpose in coming was to reveal God the Son and the Father to the world. Whose role within His place in the Trinity is to help followers grow as disciples and make new disciples. His job description was to be the presence of of God with His people wherever they are. Not limited to a tent or a mountain or a single person. So what difference does that reality of a God who is present, a God who is here, make in our daily lives? Let's go back for a second to the breathing illustration. Oxygen is essential to our existence, yet we rarely give it a thought. We assume it simply because it's always there and we usually don't have any trouble getting it. I think we can get just as accustomed to the fact that we have been given a deposit of our salvation in the form of God, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He's always there, but... We don't need to really give Him a second thought. Yet, He is fully God. Co-equal. Co-existent. Co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. The presence of the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth, that should have an impact on who we are and how we conduct our lives. 
with the awareness of his presence, his holy presence with you have an impact the next time you're tempted to compromise or sin. Could the fact that He is present and with you affect the way you approach your next trial? Would our willingness to evangelize, share our faith, look any different than it does now if we really believed the reassurances Jesus gives us in the Great Commission that all authority has been given to Him and lo, I am with you. Always. With knowing that He is here with us now. Change the way you listen to this message. I'm not looking at anybody. Would it affect the way you pray if He ceased being up there somewhere and with you right now? What about the next time you're aware of your sin, tempted towards guilt, condemnation? We're in awareness of the fact that He is with you and that He will never leave you or forsake you. Affect your willingness, as Matt talked about, to approach His throne with confidence. To recognize He has not cast you out he has brought you near. And He is staying with you. Even in those times where we desire that distance, He won't let us go. What marvelous news. What an amazing God. So how do we do this? How do we acknowledge the reality of the ongoing presence of God? The New Testament exhorts us with everyday language to walk in the Spirit, to abide, to keep in step with the Spirit. These are calls to live our lives in ways that are simply the purposeful acknowledgments of His ever-present reality. We are told as well not to live in such a way as to grieve or quench the Spirit in how we relate to one another because we aren't just as individuals the dwelling place of God, but corporately as a body. In addition to these exhortations, we're also commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And the best way I can describe this from Scripture is to be so aware of the presence of God that I can't help but overflow and for that to affect the rest of my life. In Scripture, it's not defined by or limited to any particular experience. But it is often accompanied by power to accomplish a task or boldness to proclaim the Gospel. But think about it this way. When, when does food taste best? I think it tastes best when we're hungry. It doesn't matter if it's just a plain piece of bread when it's been a while since you've eaten, you take that and it tastes amazing. 
the texture, new subtleties of taste that otherwise aren't there, you're aware of in a different way. It's totally different than when you aren't particularly hungry. When you're eating at noon because it's noon and that's what you do at noon. There's a different experience of taking in the same food. Compare that to when you've had a full day. You've stretched your time. And now you're sitting down to eat. You have that gnawing in your stomach that lets you know whatever you're about to eat, your your taste buds are going to reward you in a different way right now. For some, just discussing this has you thinking towards lunch. And I want to know I'm only thinking of serving you (laughs) when I say the longer this message goes, the better your lunch is going to taste. There's the physical nature of an empty stomach getting food that is satisfying, but I think there's another dynamic at work. And this is what I want to go after in our experience with God. It's the anticipation. We're looking forward to being satisfied. Yes, there's, there's the physical feeling of I'm hungry, but that makes me look forward to what I'm about to eat. I'm anticipating what is coming. The more eager we are, the more satisfied we will be. The more pleasing the experience will be. It's no different in our experience with God. The path to being filled with the Spirit is to be hungry for the Spirit. For the presence of God to overflow in your life. Do we hunger for Him or do we just go through the motions because it's Sunday? Do we have an eager anticipation when we come to His Word or spend time in prayer? Or is it it just another duty? It's just the weight of being a good Christian. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. The Spirit dwells in every believer. He is here with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But our experience of that reality, well, we're all aware that can vary wildly. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, what's the variable in that equation? Well, that's us. What would happen if we really believe the God who dwells with us is the same God who created the heavens and the earth, who flung the galaxies out into the expanse of the universe, who placed the billions of stars precisely where he desired and knows everyone by name. What if we believe that same God who parted the Red Sea for Israel, who helped, Daniel, or who helped David slay Goliath, 
who shut the mouths of lions for Daniel and was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. What if we gave conscious thought that He is the same God with us now? The same God who became man and revealed His true nature by healing the lame and the leper, the blind, and the demon-possessed. Who raised the dead to life before walking out of His own grave after three days. The person of the Trinity with us isn't a discount version of God. God plainly said, Jesus plainly said that it was to our advantage that God the Son depart so that God the Spirit would come. So the question is, do we believe Him? Does the way we live our lives proclaim that we believe Him? If you would realize in this moment that hasn't been your experience, what would look different if you did? What would it look like if we all did? We need, we need a hunger for His presence. And the world around us needs this from us as well. Jesus told His disciples that when the Holy Spirit comes, they would be His witnesses. Being witnesses wasn't something extra they had to add on or had to whip up afterwards. It would happen. It would be reality. The same thing that Moses was jealous to distinguish them from all the other peoples of the earth is what we want to be at work in our lives. The fact that God is here. The fact that He is at work in our lives should make the people around us wonder and even ask, what's the deal? And we'll be His witnesses as we proclaim the wonders of who He is and what He has done. That is the testimony of Acts. That can be the testimony of Sovereign Grace Church. It won't happen in our own power or efforts or plans. It's not going to happen by us trying harder. It can only happen when God is on display. If we're not hungry for that, if, if we're not longing for that, who will be? The world around us is not. They're dying and they have no idea. Our going to church isn't going to have the folks around us asking, what must I do to be saved? Neither our morality nor our doctrine are going to cause the oblivious world around us to sit up and take notice. Changed lives do that. The unexplainable does that. God on display does that. We just need to want that. We need to crave that and not be satisfied with anything less. Being hungry is the only way to be filled and satisfied. 
If hunger is the path, what's the secret to being filled with the Spirit? That's not complicated. It's ask for the Spirit. Luke 11. Jesus said, and I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Note, that's the context of this entire passage of Him calling us to ask and to seek and to knock. It's that the, whole, that the Father wants to give the Holy Spirit to you. And if you're asking for the Holy Spirit, He's not going to do some bait and switch. He's not going to trick you with something else that you don't really want. He's a good Father who loves you. And He wants this for you. And He's just saying, ask, seek, knock. It will be open to you. There's no hesitation or reluctance in His desire to give us His presence, to make it known among us for us to experience Him and relate with Him in a way that knocks our socks off and makes the world around us wonder what's going on. For us, this should be like a reset button, something we are continually coming back to. Throughout Acts, we see multiple times where they're praying and they're filled with the Spirit. They're praying and they're filled with the Spirit. It wasn't a one-time-and-done deal. It was part of an ongoing relationship. Asking Him to be manifest in their world, in their lives, so they could give glory to Him and proclaim Him with boldness. This is what sets disciples apart. That He is with us. Can we survive the Christian life without a hunger for the presence of God? Maybe. Survival isn't the goal though. We're here to advance God's kingdom while we are on this earth and to do as much damage as possible to the gates of hell. To do that we can only do that to the degree that a big God is at work in our lives and in the world. I know sitting here today, there are a lot of different backgrounds. You hear words like Holy Spirit. Just His name 
can cause some to go, uh-oh. We've got different backgrounds, different experiences. Some, you know, we come from churches where they're swinging from the chandeliers. And some, you know, the Holy Spirit was God. We acknowledge that. He's named in the Trinity. But other than that, we're not really going to talk about Him. Because we don't really like where that might go. The truth is, there's lots of different places that we could be coming from. The question is, is there a hunger for the presence of God? Do you want to see Him at work in your life and in your world, in our church? Are we willing to, even if it makes us a little uncomfortable, trust Him? He's not going to give a snake or a scorpion if we ask Him for more of Him to be displayed among us. This doesn't need to be weird. This, this shouldn't be weird because God isn't weird. He simply says, ask. Seek. Knock. He's a Father who knows how to give good gifts. He wants us to be filled with His Spirit. He wants to be on display in our lives. He just wants us to want it too. We're not looking for fireworks or a particular experience. We're looking for a person. A greater relationship with God Himself. And that's going to look different from person to person. There's no special formula or way it should look. It's a relationship that we're trying to grow in. So if that's something that you want, my encouragement to you is to ask. I'd like to just take a few minutes while the band comes up. And we just acknowledge right where you're at that God is here too. This is our opportunity to talk to Him and to allow Him to talk to us. If this is a desire, we'll ask Ask for more of Him. If it's not a desire, I recognize some of us are in that place where I don't even want that right now. But you also say, but I kind of want to want it. Well, ask for that. He wants you to desire this. He wants you to have this. He's not reluctant to give it. This isn't a game. This is a loving Father. He says, I want to be displayed in your life. I want you to have this realization. No matter where you are, I am there with you. He died to make this possible that you can know Him as you're known by Him. So let's just take a few minutes as the band begins to play and, and just talk to Him. Just ask what He's put on your hearts.